You are listening to a White Ridge Baptist Church sermon podcast. Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome here to our worship service. We're <clears throat> we're excited to be able to be worshiping with some of those wonderful songs of, of Christmas and the true meaning of this season. Uh, I had the privilege this past week of uh, telling some people the Christmas story that had never heard it before. Uh, it's, it's an awesome opportunity. You think of some people that are coming from other lands and other countries and religious backgrounds, and uh, they really they come into the culture of Canada, and you're, you're not going to get it over the radio waves or something like that. You're, you're going to have to hear it directly. And so maybe you'll have the opportunity of sharing the Christmas story, literally telling the story. It's uh, an opportunity that um, perhaps we don't think about, but it could be the opportunity that God opens the door for you to share even more about what, what Jesus came to do. I also had the privilege this past week of visiting with uh, the chief of police, uh, Devon Clunas, and uh, some of the other police. Uh, we met together with a bunch of pastors and had a, a meeting of prayer. Um, and uh, we're privileged to have in our congregation two of those uh, 1,950 people that work with the Winnipeg Police Services in our city. And we have Terrence Wynn and John Sedarius. And the thing that was exciting for me on, on uh, Tuesday was that the, the churches of the city are organizing a 365-day prayer watch for the entire police force and for every week to be covered in 2014. And so I signed us up for January 27th to February 2. You can mark that down on your calendar. I'll be, we'll be giving you more information in the coming year. And we're, we're meant to then strategize as a church how we can cover that week in prayer. We'll be given information about what to pray about, but how we mobilize that week and that is, is going to be interesting. And you'll be hearing more about that. I was also delighted to hear that, <clears throat> as Chief Clunas shared, he said that... Uh, of course, the media is not going to tell you this, but, but in the past year, uh, the, the decrease in some of the crime rate in Winnipeg and the increase of a culture of safety, as they define it, uh, is the result of answered prayer, he said. And uh, if you remember a year ago or so, he took a lot of heat for kind of talking about prayer, and uh, we just thank the Lord for uh, some of the things that are, are going on. He quoted from Isaiah chapter 37, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, when Hezekiah prayed to the Lord and God answered prayer and the Lord moved in that time. And so he, he said as well, we believe God can move in our day, in our city as well. And so he asked us to adopt the block around our church, adopt another block in the city. He asked us to support the agencies that are doing the things that need to be done in Winnipeg for people. And uh, so I want to commend to you that, uh, indeed, this is a, an opportunity for us to be praying, not just on, on our week, but uh, throughout the entire, entire year. Well, we're in the book of Joshua today. We, <clears throat> excuse me, we finish up, and <clears throat> you'll have to excuse my voice this morning. Um, it's a little bit rusty. And uh, in chapter 24 of Joshua, we're going to be looking at it in a moment, um, it's been a journey to go through Joshua. We began 12 weeks ago or so, and 
Um, this journey has started us looking at just what God wanted to do in and through his people, fulfilling the promise he had made to Abraham, saying to his people, everywhere that you put your foot, I'm going to give you. And it's because the promised land, the land of Canaan, was actually given to Abraham some 600 years earlier, but had never been laid foot on. And and as we get ready in the new year to study the book of Ephesians, we see the counterpart in our life as Christians that every promise is yes in Christ Jesus. Everything that the Lord has given us is through Christ our Savior. And yet we, we have not put our feet on and claimed and lived in and under the blessing of the promises. And I think that somehow going through Joshua this fall is going to help us as we get into some of the things of Ephesians and what it is that our blessings in Christ are all about. And so in chapters 23 and 24, we have this last, last speech of Joshua. It's interesting, the last words of someone are pretty important. In fact, someone's words after they die become more important than when they live. We noticed that with this past week, isn't it? With Nelson Mandela, and we're hearing every broadcast uh, quoting some speech of Nelson Mandela's. And similarly, I'm sure that after Joshua had died, these two chapters, 23 and 24, that were committed to memory and written down, according to chapter 24, we were written down as part of the book of the law, then they, they became important touchstones, guiding lights for the people of Israel as they disseminated and as they went into the land of Canaan and they occupied the 12 zones that had been distributed. <clears throat> and so today... We have the privilege of looking at this scripture. And uh, in chapter, tw- chapter 24 alone, the word serve is used 16 times. And it's because for Joshua, as he leaves his people behind and, and is about to die, for him, the, the secret of finishing well, the secret of a long life of serv- was, was service to the Lord. And so he uses the word serve and service over and over again. In fact, I'm just going to read with you two key verses from chapter 24, and I want you to count how many times the word serve is used in these two verses. We're going to look at Joshua chapter 24 and verses 14 and 15, and I'm going to ask if you'd stand with me right now. Joshua 24, 14 and 15. Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped, that's the word serve, same word in Hebrew, beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. How many times? Seven times, amen. You may be seated. Seven times in two verses, Joshua uses the word serve. In, these, in this incredibly brilliant last speech of Joshua's, we find that not only is Joshua reciting God's story. Have you ever heard that way that history is defined as his story? Joshua believed that because as he recites the story of Israel, beginning with Abraham, 
He is talking about his story, God's story. But the interesting thing is, is that he's locating Israel in the middle of God's story. And that's one of the important things that you and I need to do as we get to know God, at whatever point in the journey you're at in knowing God, you need to find your place, your story, within the grand narrative, the big story of God. Because that, that's what God is doing. Is he's, he's inviting people into relationship with Him where we find our place in Him. That's what Israel did, and that's what God uh, was doing through Joshua as he finishes up his life. He not only tells about the story in God they had, but also he, he leaves a legacy uh, in his own life and in his words of what it means to serve the Lord. And it, it really means, as we look at today, it means a life filled with incredibly godly choices. It means a life filled with many choices and decisions made along the path. So let's take a look at three things I'd like to share with you this morning. And to begin with, uh, to finish well, we need to know God's story and we need to know how to find ourselves in God's story. The place that this last speech takes place in chapter 24, verse 1, is Shechem. And that place was very historic because that's where God first met Abraham. If we go back to chapter 12 of Genesis you'll see that that's the very place that God met Abraham. Abraham was, was a moon worshiper. Abraham's father and forefathers were idolaters. They had many gods. They were polytheists. That means they worshiped not just one god, but many gods. And God just took Abraham, he plucked him out of that life, and he called him to the life that he was leading him to in the promised land. And he made out of Abraham a great nation. And it's this place that, that Joshua, to have his last words shared, takes Israel to this place, this historic place, where, where the nation of Israel began. And in this speech, not only does he, as I say, recount the history and remind them of their place, but he also utters some very clear warnings of what's going to happen if you don't serve the Lord. I would like you to, if you have a Bible and you want to take it, open it to chapter 24, I really want to dig in for a little while to verses 2 to 13 in chapter 24, because I think this is the, the brilliant part of his speech, his last words. And in verses 2 to 13, we notice that Joshua begins to speak as a prophet. Um, he is saying at the beginning of, in verse 2, he says, this is what the Lord the God of Israel says. So whenever, whenever a prophet would speak, this is what he would do. He would say, and it's not me speaking, it's God talking. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. And then you'll notice that as he moves on from verse 2 to verse 13, he uses God's first person personal pronoun, I. He is talking like God. And he uses 17 personal pronouns in, the, in those 12 verses. And he basically is, is describing God's perspective, God's story from God's perspective. And in the middle of that, God's story from God's perspective, he's including where Israel's at. And so this is the portion I'd like us to dig into for a moment. To do the history lesson, for, for Joshua to impart this history lesson and not camp there for two weeks, 
he takes a survey form and he goes to three points in time of Israel's history, and they're all marked by a body of water. The first one is the river Euphrates, the second one is the Red Sea, and the third one is the Jordan River. And in all three instances, we see that God delivers His people out of something awful to bring them into something better. And they keep on getting themselves back into trouble. But God keeps on delivering them. So you'll notice in verse 2, for example, you'll notice that it says, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river, and they worshipped or served other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river, and I led him throughout Canaan. So that's the, first, that's the first crossover, the crossover of the Euphrates River from Mesopotamia, the, the area known as Sumeria, Ur of the Chaldeans, present-day Iraq. And God took Abraham, as I said, as, as an idolater and brought him into a, mono, a, a monotheistic faith in, the, a faith in the one true living God. Secondly, in verses 6 and 7, he describes the land of Egypt. He says, when I brought your fathers out of Egypt, you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued them with, with chariots and horsemen as far as the Red Sea. And they cried out to the Lord for help, and he says, I delivered them. And so, so, so far, he has identified that God delivered Abraham from idolatry, and God delivered Israel from slavery. Thirdly, he goes on in verse 11 and 12, to speak about how they'd wandered in the wilderness and then he, they crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho after the 40 years of wandering homelessly. And so this survey of Israel's history covers beginning with Abraham and using the Euphrates River as the marker, then the Red Sea and, the jo- and then the Jordan River as the two other markers along the journey. And it ends with this incredible summary statement found in verse 13. After this history lesson, verse 13 gives the summary statement, and he says this, So I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities you did not build, and you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Incredible summary statement. You live in a land that you did not toil for, you have cities that you did not build, and you're eating food that you did not plant. What is God saying to Israel through Joshua? He's saying, I did this all for you. You cannot, at the end of the age, you cannot pat yourself on the back. You cannot say that somehow you were able to do this. You cannot go and say that that, uh, it was because of your strong hand or your uh, wisdom or your ability. I was your constant guide and companion and deliverer throughout all the generations. You see, the story of Israel is encompassed in the story of God. It it was all by His grace. And if you understand Old Testament history, you know that over and over and over again, they messed up and God delivered. And God kept a remnant. And so we see that in the midst of unfaithfulness, God was faithful. Can Can you find your story somehow reflected in Israel's history? Do you, do you see where your story is located in God's bigger story, especially His Son, Jesus Christ, being sent to this earth? The longer I live, the more I look back and the more I say over and over again to myself that I am blessed beyond blessing and that I keep on not deserving 
I keep on not deserving the blessing that I get from God. What are the key markers in your journey? I mean, Israel, in this history lesson, Joshua gave three markers marked by bodies of water. What are the three markers or four markers in your journey up till now? I know that my first marker started when I was at the age of 17. And I know that just as as Abraham, I think all of our first marker has to be like Abraham, bringing someone that was completely out out of him, out in darkness and into the light. And we cannot somehow boast that, well, I had a Christian upbringing or somehow. No, the fact is that God has no grandchildren. You come to Christ by yourself and you, you are in darkness until you awaken to see that indeed Jesus Christ is your only hope to live beyond this life, your only hope to be forgiven of your sin. And the first marker in your life is probably a marker that has something to do that's awakening you to the reality of God. Not just this idea that maybe people speak about, but really God, a living God. You cannot touch Him, you cannot see Him, but He is real. I remember when I was 17 that one of the first markers in my why, growing up in a Christian home, but one of the first markers in my spiritual journey was having to say goodbye and, and not associate as much with some non-Christian friends. I was best friends with a guy named Tim. And I knew that, that he was following after a life at the age of 16 or 17 that I knew I had tried and I knew that that's not what God wanted for me. And I just knew that I saw the grace of God upon my life to lead me in another direction, and I had to make the choice. And I remember talking to Tim and saying, I can't go with you. And I know this is going to affect our friendship. And I know we're not going to be close like we used to be. You see, every, every, every grace period in your life has a marker, but it is also accompanied by a choice. We read in Genesis chapter 12 about Abraham, and we hear about all that first three verses, the covenant of Abraham, but verse 4 is often forgotten, and it says, and Abraham left. You see, God called him to leave the the worshipers of idolatry in his father's household and, and go to the land that he would be shown, and it says Abraham got up and he left. He made the choice. And all of our markers will likely be accompanied by incredible seasons of grace, but also important decisions that you and I are meant to make. Now, the reason that this history lesson in chapter 24 is so important is because in this little speech that Joshua is giving, he's driving toward a goal. He's driving toward the climax, which we read about earlier. And all throughout this, he's going toward the point of, of at, at, at one point, finally, toe-to-toe with Israel, confronting them eye-to-eye and saying, choose this day who you're going to serve. But as for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. Now you think to yourself, well, come on, Joshua, the choice had already been made. I mean, come on, they're, they're in the land of Canaan, they've got their inheritance, they've already chosen to obey Yahweh. Really? Really, is that what you read in the text? Let's take a look. You'll notice in verse 2 of chapter 24 that even in the middle of this, God is saying that Abraham was among a tribe of idolaters. 
in chapter 24, verse 23, we notice that even after they say they're going to obey just one God, Israel's God, still Joshua has to say to them, well, then throw away your foreign gods. You see, what, what we really witness in, in Israel's history is that throughout their time of journeying through the time of Abraham and then into the wilderness and then to Egypt and then back into the wilderness and then into Canaan and so on, they had been circling all that area, knowing many nations. But along the way, they'd kept a vestige of the many gods that they had encountered. They had kept a vestige of them. They were in their household gods. They were among the trinkets that they carried. One author said this way, that their ancestors added gods along their migrations like theological postcards kept to honor the places that they had visited. And so, beginning with, with Abraham, Joshua goes back in his history lesson to say, You've got gods that date back to then. Ezekiel chapter 16 verse 3 kind of reminds Israel of the same kind of thing when he says, your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. And we might assume that there was a clean break from the polytheistic roots that Abraham had lived with and into the monotheism, one God. The fact is that that's not what we see in their history and that's why over and over again throughout the history of Israel, the prophets are raised up and they preach what? They say, leave the gods behind. Leave the Baal worship and the, the, the Asherah poles and all the things that your nations around you worship. Even after all the mighty acts of God, we see over and over again that they continue to hang on. And yet in verse 19, we see that God is a holy God and He is a jealous God. And so what does that mean? It means that he won't share your adoration, your worship, with a bunch of other little gods alongside of him. So what were these foreign gods? What were the choices that were being put before Israel by Joshua? Well, he just recounted the variety of gods that come from the variety of areas that they come from. Mesopotamia beyond the Euphrates, Egypt beyond the Red Sea, and the Amorites east of the Jordan, including as well the Canaanites and all those groups inside the Promised Land. We don't have time to look at all these cultures, obviously. Many cultures, many idols. But the, the thing that they had in common was that none of them had just one god. All of them had many gods. Kind of like later the Greek pantheon of gods. The ancient Eastern cultures had many gods, and they were called Baals, B-A-A-L. And the Baal word is kind of like the word king. And there was many Baal. There were kings of different areas in, for example, Mesopotamia, where the gods were kind of like humans, except much more superhuman in every area. So a superhuman Baal that would have superhuman wisdom or superhuman strength or whatever it might be. And so there was the, the, the Baal worship going on in Mesopotamia where Abraham came from. There was also uh, different bales that were in charge of different areas. There was the, the bale in charge of the weather god, presiding over the clouds and the lightning and the storm and the sun and rain and so on. There was Dagon Baal, the fertility god, Yam, the god of the sea, Mot, the god of death. And there was just a whole list of bale worship that was going on. In Egypt as well, when, when Israel got to Egypt again and started to adopt some of their practices 
they also were, were a pantheon of gods. And that's why the ten plagues that are addressing the gods of Egypt have to do with all the creation, the Nile, the gnats, the flies, the grasshoppers, and all the things that were confounding the gods of Egypt as the living God confronted them. And then they get into the Canaanite peoples, and of course they're the most corrupt of all, as we've been seeing over our series in Joshua. Everything from human sacrifice, babies being killed as a sacrifice, sexual perversions and practices, witchcraft, and so on. The teaching behind some of this was, was corrupted. The, for example, the regular practice of fertility rites that involved a worshiper going to a pagan temple and engaging with a cult prostitute. What was the belief? The belief was that intercourse symbolically encouraged the gods to inseminate the land with abundant fertility. So if you wanted to have good crops that year, then you would need to go to a pagan temple and to engage in this sexual practice so that the gods would look with favor and give you fertile, fertile land and fertile crops. This is the superstition. This was the belief. And we can see why Israel got involved in some of these pagan practices. We can see three reasons why they, they, they be, it was hard for them to just leave the polytheism aside and, and follow just one true God. First of all, it was because they had this superstitious idea that maybe, maybe what if they're right and next year my family doesn't have anything to live off of. They were agricultural people. And so they, they would accept this, well, I'll follow God, but I'll also, I'll also make sure that these other gods are okay with me. We see this practice in many cultures today. I saw it in Bolivia, among indigenous peoples. We see it in the whole missionary movement, friends, all over the world, where a people would be preached by missionaries Christ, and they would receive Christ, and then in time the missionaries would understand that, yeah, they received Christ, but they still hung on to ancestral worship. They still hung on to the syncretism of different ideas that accompanied, accompanied uh, tribal religious beliefs, ancestral worship, the animistic beliefs. A syncretism occurs. A second reason why Israel had a hard time leaving this polytheism behind was because they were tempted by the sensuality of all these things. It, it was just sensuous. It, it, it appealed to their own sin and desire as they looked around at the peoples in the land that they had lived. And then the third reason why it was difficult was because they were surrounded. I mean, even in Canaan, where God was telling them to, to drive out the ones that lived there, they allowed them to stay. And so they were uh, surrounded by these practices, and God had warned them about that. Now, before you think that I'm just talking about ancient history here, what I'm saying is that I believe the same three reasons are why you and I have a hard time getting rid of the polytheism of North America in the 21st century. You see, we, we somehow also have this, this belief in, in more than just God in Jesus Christ. We also trust in other things. We also believe the advertising and, and, and the thoughts that say somehow maybe I need to take care of my own needs. 
And so I'll, I'll take all the trappings that my culture gives me and I'll grab the Lord as well. We also are titillated and tempted by all of the ways that the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boasting of what we have and do comes from around us. And we also are surrounded by a sin-saturated, idolatrous culture. We're surrounded by people who are engaged in gratifying themselves in whatever ways they can, whether through simple or carnal pleasure, and they just can't figure out what's wrong with you Christians that you wouldn't want to do the same. And they'll question all kinds of choices that we make because of faith decisions. Let's move on. I want to suggest as well that in chapters 24, chapter 24, that there's very interesting that, that Joshua calls the elders, teachers, leaders, and judges and officials, all the leadership to come near because as the leadership goes, so goes the culture. And the transition between Joshua and the next generation was not going to be as simple as the transition was between Moses and Joshua. Because now you see Israel is scattered throughout the land. They're no longer just one nation. And so this central verse that we read earlier, chapter 24, verse 15, is as clear as it may sound, it's not as simple as it looks. This idea that choose this day whom you'll serve, as for me and my house we will serve the Lord. The, the English translations give it that sort of future sense, tense, a verb, saying, we will, future, we will serve the Lord. Henceforth, from now on, we will serve the Lord, the English translation. But the Hebrew tense of the verb is actually continuous action. And so the essence of this statement is basically saying, we will, we have, we are, and we will keep on choosing the Lord. We will keep on serving the Lord, and it will require on our part many, many, many choices along the way because we live in a, in a land and we are confronted with many, many, many options of, of deists and gods and polytheism that is presented to us. And so when Joshua says, choose this day whom you're serving, He's saying, you've got to keep on choosing because you're going to keep on being confronted with all kinds of options. That's what we're faced with. And then I want to suggest as well that besides the present generation that Joshua was concerned with when he gathered the leaders, he was also concerned about the next generation, but maybe Joshua didn't do as well as Moses did in transferring faith to the following generation. Take a look at verse 31 in chapter 24. It says, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. I don't know about you, but I feel as though that's an incomplete sentence. It kind of just ends, but I want to say, well, then what happened? And the then what happened isn't given in Joshua, but it is given in the very next book of the Bible, in Judges. So if you turn your page over in your Bible to the very next book in Judges, and you'll notice in chapter 2 and verse 10, the story is completed. 
After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they served the Baals, plural. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt, and they followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. And so we see that that following that generation of Joshua and all the elders that outlived him, they did not do a good job at passing on the faith to the next generation because once the experience of God had died out and once faith in God had died out, there was no more connection, no more link to keep the people of Israel following just the one God as supreme God. And so they fell away and they began to be just like the culture around them. Friends, this obviously has such relevance for our church, our age, our culture. I mean, the the most incredible opportunity that sits in the lap of every parent is to pass on genuine faith to that child. And you never stop being a parent and you, you continually, until the day you die, are, are called upon to invest in those children and those grandchildren to ensure that what God had given you is passed on to what God has left you. And the legacy that you will leave as Joshua leaves his legacy is, is got to be a legacy of a life that is lived in serving one true living God and the myriad of choices that have been made along that life journey in order to stay the course and to come to the end of your days and say, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord We serve the Lord and we will serve the Lord till the day I die. You can look at various examples in Scripture of how well or how poorly great heroes of the faith did or did not pass on their faith to the next generation. And friend, that's why as a church, White Ridge Baptist Church, as a church... We have, to, we have to be so earnest about what matters. You know, it, when, we, when we do something, we have to have such purpose in what we do. If we spend money in our budget, it has to be so clear that it's money for a reason. If we spend volunteer hours, thousands of hours in an annual, in a, in a year, it must be with a purpose that we're desiring to plant and nurture and water the seed of faith in the living and true God, calling every generation away from all the things, the good and the bad and the ugly things that call people to to leave their dependency on God. You see, it it happens so subtly. It starts where, where a complete dependency on God becomes just a partial dependency on God. And then the partial dependency on God even slips further so that it's more of a majority dependence on something else. And then pretty soon that majority dependence on something else becomes addictive behaviors, addictive qualities. And one day a generation wakes up and says, who is this God? that my grandfather worshipped. 
as I said earlier, I think that we as, we as Christians in this day and age are more like the Israelites than we care to admit. If we're to think deeply about it, I think we find our story in the story of Israel and in their story in the story of God. We also have a hard time with a decisive monotheism, one true living God, Jesus Christ. We struggle with our many polytheistic deities. We struggle with household gods, just like the Israelites had their household gods made of gold and silver and wood and stone. An author by the name of Chris Hedges said, We have our household gods no longer made of clay, but all promising to fulfill us, our computers, our televisions, our jobs, our wealth, our social status, along with the brands that we wear and the cars we drive. They all promise us contentment and they inform our identity. They, these household gods seem to offer us well-being, health, and success. But all these gods create cults, and all these cults circle back to us, to a dangerous self-worship fed by forces who seek to ensnare us into idolatry. It's difficult to live in this age. I'm not saying it isn't. It is difficult to keep your heart solely devoted to Jesus. We are daily tempted to find our happiness fix in things that will reduce our total dependency on God into just a partial dependency. And so we will live like the Israelites who say in this scripture, of course, far be it from us to leave God. Look what he's done for us. But then right after it, Joshua says, you're not able to, to serve the Lord. And he says, yes, we are. We're going to serve the Lord. And then later on, Joshua says, well, then get rid of the foreign gods. Then take these things out of your living rooms. You see, very interesting that the, the foreign gods actually had the daily rituals. Literally, they would get up sometimes and offer food to these little gods. Whereas, whereas as you've seen, the Le Levitical towns were far away. And some of the festivals of Israel were not on a necessarily daily basis if an individual Hebrew man or woman didn't want to practice them. And yet these household gods were, were in your living room, in your bedroom, in everywhere and how easily they take over do we treat our religion that way are we a sunday religion are we a go to church religion but meanwhile the household gods are really in control we know who they are materialism pleasure convenience fun all masks of a polytheism of North America in the 21st century. But underneath it, there's just one real big God, false God, and it's the God of self. Greek mythology tells the story of a handsome young man who was incapable of loving anyone. The Greeks talk about this man being absolutely beautiful, handsome young man. All the women wanted this man. And they say that he was incapable of loving any woman. Beautiful young nymph by the name of Echo fell in love with him and she began to see his plight and so she started to pray for him. She prayed, may he who loves no one love himself. Sounds like current psychology, doesn't it? 
Meanwhile, the young man at the time was walking through the woods and he came across a lake and he stooped down to drink some water out of the lake. And as he stooped over the lake, he saw his own reflection in, in the lake, looking back at him. And he saw how beautiful he was. And he fell in love with himself and his own reflection. Echo's prayer had been answered. But realizing, realizing his own beauty, he realized at the same time how much pain that his beauty must have caused all the women that pursued him. So goes the story. And so he dove into the lake. He drowned himself. And when Echo went looking for him, she found at that place not his body, but a flower. As the Greek mythologists say, a flower growing where he had drowned. A beautiful flower, and they named the flower after him, Narcissus. From this name comes the common term for excessive admiration for or a preoccupation with oneself. Narcissism believes the message that every individual can be the center of his or her own world. And if you create a culture of narcissism, it is a culture of self-preoccupation and self-absorption. But let me tell you, it is not a culture of self-awareness. How is it that we could be delivered from our polytheism in a culture of narcissism? I think the answer, the answer that we see is found in the New Testament where we are called upon to look into the face of the one who did not live according to narcissistic desires. But rather he said, if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me daily. For in that is life eternal. It's interesting if you take a look in Judges chapter 24, the the very last verses end with a few funerals, a few burials. One of them in verse 32 is the burial of Joseph's bones. You know, you remember that Joseph lived hundreds of years earlier in Egypt, but in, in Genesis chapter 50, we see that when Joseph was, a, was about to die, he told his brothers and he made them swear that when Israel left Egypt toward the promised land that Abraham, their forefather, had given them, that they would take his bones with them and they would bury him there in the promised land. And can you imagine for 40 years wandering around the hot, dry wilderness with Joseph on your back? And then finally, after the conquest, we see now at Shechem in this place where Abraham was called by God, they bury Joseph's bones. I wonder if if this wasn't thought of by Paul the Apostle when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4.10, We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. I wonder if Paul was thinking about Joseph being carried around in the wilderness when he wrote this verse. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be revealed. You see, I think that in that very verse, 
is the secret to how we escape the corruption of poly, polytheism in our culture. It is, it is in, in learning how to, with Jesus Christ, die to all the things that come seeking our adoration and seeking our attention and seeking our desires. And in so dying with Christ, all that, we recognize that we have real life and not slavery. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and conclude our, our time. And then I'm going to end with a word of prayer for us after we sing this song.